You're listening to Church Historia. Welcome to this very first episode of this brand new podcast, which explores the tapestry of Christianity and threads both familiar and new. I'm Leslie. And I'm Stephanie. We're calling this first season of Church Historia, Who Are Your People?, as we focus on Southern Christianities and talk about some of the traditions, movements, and places in Southern Christian history. And as is often the case with the study of history of any faith tradition, we'll cover things that bring us both pride and shame. And it's really important that we look at both of them and seek to learn from all of the things in our histories. We'll also discover some parts of the tradition that are lesser known and hopefully offer folks some new perspectives on the Southern Christian experience. Yeah, so each episode will actually talk about a specific tradition. And in this first episode, we're going to start our journey at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start, right, Steph? Yes. Uh, by establishing the context of our own traditions. So I, Leslie, uh, was raised in the North, but I was actually born in the South to a mother with a long history of Southern roots. And I was born and raised in New England in an evangelical church that was shaped by the influence of Catholic family and neighbors, but also the legacy of the Puritans. And now we're both in Nashville. We've been here for like the last, what, 12 years? 12 years. <laughs> and uh, we've made our homes in the hills of Music City and our own northern expectations and assumptions about the South have been broken down a little bit, but rebuilt over the years. And we've both grown to love this land and the people on it. After establishing our own context, we'll continue the episode with a look at one of the early Christian movements that developed in the South, in Bourbon County, Kentucky, in Cane Ridge, and use it to explore questions of preaching and church leadership so we can identify things that we can take away when looking at this history. Yeah, that's an important thing to note. So with each of these episodes, we want to ask questions and give takeaways that will help us all live better histories as we write them each day. So now one final note before we go on. Steph here is not only a church historian, which means she researches for the show and teaches us about the topics. So you're going to hear her voice most of the time. But she's also what we call a tea mistress, which means she has tons of different tea and teapots and cups. And so we're actually drinking tea throughout all of these episodes, which is absolutely delicious. And you're going to hear clinks and bangs and sips. And we're just going to really hope you don't mind. Yep. And there's also a lot of wrestling pages as I refer to sources and share quotes while we sit in the international room of the Skerritt Bennett Center in Nashville. We are so glad you're here on this journey with us. Welcome, Welcome to, to Church, Church Historia. Historia. So, Steph, I think where we'd want to start off is just getting a good idea of Southern Christianities. What were our perceptions? Yeah, and I think you and I both bring an interesting perspective as two non-Southerners who came to the South and who came from different parts of the United States and what that may have looked like for us. So I can start with some of my, my yeah, thoughts, and then mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear what your experience was as well. So... I think my assumption of the South and Southern Christianity was as a singular expression that looked very Southern Baptist and a very particular type of Southern Baptist. I assumed that there was a preacher probably in a, in a suit with passionate exhortation, maybe some fire and brimstone, an altar call, people dancing in the aisles, uh, laying on of hands, mm. pr profound movements of the spirit, loud mm. movements of the spirit. Mm -hmm. And 
a very charismatic tradition, a very preaching focused tradition. I think I knew that there was food involved. I think I I assumed that food was a thing Mm -hmm. and perhaps in a way that I hadn't experienced. Is that just because of Cracker Barrel? No, I think that's because my sort of the the perception of Southern culture that had made it up, up to me was one that centered around large family meals. Uh, so yeah. the idea of you Sunday afternoon dinners is what dinners. Called. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sunday, Sunday dinners, Sunday dinner. So I, I think that that was a lot of my, my take on what I, yeah. what I thought I was going to find. My mom was raised Southern Baptist in Southern Illinois, which geographically is on the same level as Kentucky. So I have a, I have a, this sort of like Southern Baptist culture in my, experience of the world and whenever we'd go visit our grandparents we'd go to their church and it's this tiny wonderful rich little congregation a very small little country church with farmers but I knew there were these bigger huger church with big choirs and the yes the the loud guy in the suit and the you know these sorts of these bigger things but what I was surprised to find were all the nuances in Christianity in the south things like Church of Christ, Catholicism, a more high church liturgical, Episcopalian, Anglican. I mean, there are so many Christianities represented in the South. And so I think that was one of my biggest surprises is I kind of also had this idea that it was going to be very Southern Baptist, lots of potlucks. And there is a difference between Southern culture, which appreciates food and lots of food and specific kinds of food and the ways in which we are partaking in food together, that does not necessarily mean you go to a specific church congregation, right? And so it's so interesting to see a lot of these church congregations that have different denominational titles still have potlucks. Yes, yes. And- <laughs> you, can, you can find a potluck across the South. Not currently in this time of COVID, unfortunately, but when this all passes, the potlucking is going to be quite I extensive. hadn't thought about that, and I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> The amount of chicken and dumplings consumed. And mac and cheese. You know, in high school, our church would go to Kentucky every summer to do VBS for three different churches. And that's Vacation Bible School. And the the kids from the haulers would come and we would go pick them up. After we would get done, we'd get done around noon, they would bust out the biggest buffet I'd ever seen in my life. And... It was a sort of hospitality, welcoming, celebrating this wonderful thing that, that the children, the neighborhood children get to come. You know, this is not a wealthy community. And so it food plays such a big role in Southern culture as a whole. Yeah. And I think as we talk over the course of, of this season, we'll look at a lot of this diversity and variety and some of the things that may surprise people. But this idea of a impassioned, charismatic, revivalist tradition in the South is a very real one, and it's a very grounded one. And what we're going to talk about today is a kind of launching point for our conversation is Cane Ridge in Kentucky, where the first revival as we have come to understand and define revivals takes place in the United States. And it came out of a a tradition and we'll we'll sort of talk about where it comes from. It wasn't a totally spontaneous phenomenon, but it was a unique phenomenon that then sets 
this new style and tenor and idea that a number of denominations, not just the Baptists, the Methodists also get really in on camp meetings and it becomes sort of just an evangelical thing as a whole. And so we do see that birthed here in the South, but then really take on and explode out and and huh. grow out into other places. But before before we get to the Cane Ridge revival in 1801, we need to situate sort of what's going yeah. on in the in the American religious sort of temperament at the time. And so the early 19th century is a time of the Great Awakenings. There's two to three of them, depending on kind of how you want to classify things from a historical periodization moment. But there's some things that have started to change. And so to talk about that change, we have to hop over to England briefly to talk about George Whitfield. So George Whitfield is influenced by John Wesley in the early days of the Methodist movement. Mm -hmm. And Whitfield agrees with Wesley on a lot of things and a lot of things about the need for renewal of people's faith that that faith and church community has gotten a little stale and a little mm. dull and, and and we need to bring back a passionate love of God. Mm. And so Whitfield feels very strongly about this and so he begins preaching outdoors. And this is a huge deal because in England at this time, if you wanted to preach, a church had to invite you to come preach, and you preached inside, inside of a church, and that was very much where preaching occurred. Whitfield felt that he didn't need an invitation, that his parish was the world, that this was God's command to go and preach the gospel, so he wasn't going to wait for that church invitation. So he starts preaching outside, and he mm. is a dramatic incredibly skilled orator mm. and he's apparently very loud because thousands of people start coming to hear him preach and they can hear him yeah. before our age of microphones which well, is that's very when you impressive said his name i was like wait that's the loud guy that spoke to thousands of people outside yes incredible yep and i think i think he spoke in philadelphia at one point and there were upwards of twenty thousand people including benjamin franklin and franklin being franklin counted the number of people in an average square footage and then did a calculation to figure out the square footage of available street space in Philadelphia minus the buildings and then got us an estimate. So many, many thanks to Ben. That's Benjamin Franklin's doing? Yep. Wow. For okay. his precision you, in counting. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So we have this tradition then with Whitfield and a or not even tradition, but this beginning of open air preaching with Whitfield that catches on. And what's funny is Wesley hates it. Really? He thinks it's an abomination. And, oh. but what he can't deny is the success that Whitfield is having. That people are being awakened to the spirit, that they are committing their lives to Christ, that they're being convicted of their sin and, and turning towards God. And he can't deny it. And so he writes this letter where he sort of begrudgingly says, well, it's working, so I guess I'm going to have to do it even if I don't like it. And it's it. an abomination because it's not being done in a church building? Yes. The, I think a lot of it has to do with Sounds kind a of a cultural like he might have been jealous. Probably. And a little bit of sort of the, the appropriateness of things, right? And there are certain things that are appropriate to do in certain spaces and certain things that are not. And standing on a tree stump yelling – is, is not an appropriate way to right. do this 
holy act of preaching. Hmm. But it's really effective and lots of people can come hear you. So eventually Wesley adopts it. Both of them travel to the United States and do several preaching tours, including preaching tours outside. Hmm. And so this starts to become kind of more and more of a thing. And it's also just a very practical thing, especially when we're talking about the United States at this point. There are very few cities. Cities are very small. So not every community is going to have a church. You may have to travel really far to go to church. Churches may not be able to seat a ton of people. So you think you have... You've got this big name. You've got George Whitfield coming to town to preach. Well, your church only seats 200 people. Hmm. Well, there's way more than 200 people coming. So what does everybody else do? Well, you just put Whitfield outside. <laughs> and it's great. And then everybody can come and everybody can hear. So we have this outdoor preaching, this, this preaching for emotion and for conviction. Along with the Great Awakening is a reoccurrence of a number of pietistic movements and holiness movements that are focused on how do we become the most holy that we can, the most pious we can, truly not just repent of our sin, but truly turn away from it and become something new. Puritans are a great example of this, about trying to live a sinless life that Mm -hmm. is to the glory of God. And when we think about the Puritans, I think we often think they're tight and kind of stuck up and no fun. But then you get somebody like Jonathan Edwards and you read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and it is so emotive mm. and it is so emotional. And the whole point is for you to have an emotional experience and to truly encounter the divine in a personal and immediate way. This isn't just an intellectual or symbolic consent, but that you are truly entering into this relationship with God. Yeah. And so we have a lot of just this idea of of emotion and bringing emotion to faith and the church on one hand loves that and it and it enlivens the individual faith of a number of people on the other hand it gets a little bit scary mm-hmm. because when you're caught up in emotion you can error and you can you deviate from orthodoxy. And so the, the church has a lot of debates about sort of what to do with this emotional enlivening and is it okay? You know, should it happen at all? Should we be having these ecstatic experiences or are those ways of unhinging us from the mm-hmm. true faith? Yeah. Or are they indwellings of the spirit? So the first person we're going to look at is Charles Finney, who is born in the late 18th century and lives through most of the 19th century. And he is a strong defender of revival. He thinks that it is one of the major ways in which the spirit is moving. And so for him, he has several essays defining what revival is, what it isn't. He says that it's not it's not a miracle. It's not... Um, mysterious in a lot of ways. In fact, it's a very natural expression of what happens when the human heart is is turned towards God. Mm-hmm. And so he also has some opinions about what what makes a good revival and an orthodox revival and how you tell the difference between a honest revival and a somebody fake one. and a fake one or somebody who's putting on a show or using it for their own okay. for their own focus. So he says that a revival always includes the conviction on, of sin on the part of the church. 
In a true revival, Christians are always brought under such convictions. They see their sins in such light that often they find it impossible to maintain hope of their acceptance with God. Backslidden Christians will be brought to repentance. A revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Revivals break the power of the world and of sin over Christians. It brings them to such a vantage ground that they get a fresh impulse towards heaven. They have a new foretaste of heaven and new desires after union to God. The charm of the world is broken and the power of sin is overcome. When churches are thus awakened and reformed, the reformation and salvation of sinners will follow, going through the same stages of conviction, repentance, and reformation. The worst parts of human society are softened and reclaimed and made to reappear as lovely specimens of the beauty of holiness. Wow. So for him, so that that's how we know what true revival is, but also that's the goodness in it, that this is what's happening, that churches are awakened and reformed, that sinners are repenting and turning to Christ, that these, what he calls the worst parts of human society are softened. Mm. And so for him, again, he sees this as sort of the main way that the spirit is moving, not necessarily in opposition to Finney, but maybe in a more cautious position to Finney is an example of the New Lebanon Convention, which is a, a group of pastors who meet in Lebanon, New York in 1827. And they're sort of trying to set up guidelines around what it, what is proper conduct in, in a revival and how do we know what's, what's going on? Um, Cause as we'll see when we get to Cane Ridge, there's a lot of behaviors that might be disruptive or uncouth mm-hmm. or somehow pushing against social norms. Mm-hmm. And so this is this can be very unsettling. So they set forth some guidelines about things like not using irreverent familiarity with God, such as men use towards their equals. So interesting. Yep. Yeah, so it's really important that God uh-huh. is God. Right. And and he's not our friend. He's not a. He's yeah, not like this our, is this our is not. Friend. Yeah, this is less of the best friend Jesus. Yeah, they make a distinction between this between uneducated and ardent young men and then settled pastors, which is an interesting one hmm. about. And again, we'll see this when we dive into Cane Ridge, but these indwellings of the Spirit cause people to want to proclaim and to want to declare and to want to preach, and they're sort of cautioning against that and equating that with somebody who spent their life dedicated to studying scripture and to studying theology Hmm. and who has practice in the discernment of truth versus falsehood. So amongst this emotion, you're like, that's great, but we also have to make sure that it aligns with scripture, that it aligns with the traditions of the church, that aligns with theology and orthodoxy. And so you have this balancing of trying to maintain the the sort of I want to say the familiar, but the the orthodox, the stable, the the known to be true, the believed to be true, and then this impassioned fire that seems to be catching hold. There's an awareness that they have that this sort of new thing that's catching on could quickly become dangerous. Yes, is that would that be accurate? Yes, yeah, I absolutely I absolutely think so, and that it could lead to inventions mm. perhaps that's a that's a term that gets used a lot to talk about either heteroorthodox or non-orthodox beliefs of christianity is their their inventions ah. um so yes there's very much a concern that it is possible that revivals instead of bringing people closer to god may actually bring them to a 
shadow of God or a, a made up version of Christianity that looks like Christianity, but it's really not. And that what are the consequences then for their souls? Yeah, interesting. Hey friend, we'll get back to the beautiful international room at the Scarrett Bennett Center and our conversation about Cambridge in a minute. But we wanted to thank you for listening to Church Historia and ask a favor of you. We're a new show, and as such, we need help making sure other folks know we exist and are worth listening to. So by subscribing and leaving reviews, you can make sure others know that this show is worth taking up space in their podcast listening schedule. We appreciate it so very much. Thank you. Now, back to our conversation about Cane Ridge. So at this point, particularly in Cane Ridge, they are predominantly Presbyterian. Hmm. And likely, if not Scots Presbyterian by heritage, Scots Presbyterian by tradition. And so they have this, this group of Presbyterians living in kind of Kentucky and Ohio have a history of camp meetings prior to Cane Ridge. And like we talked okay. about earlier, this is sort of a, a practical phenomenon for a rural community that doesn't get to go to church often because you may not have a pastor. Hmm. You know, th- this is the age where pastors are covering an entire state. Right. It's the same era of the, the Methodist itinerant preachers who are you know, covering multiple states, moving from sort of community to community to community. Wow. You're traveling by foot. You're traveling by horse. You're not getting very far yeah. in a day. So, you know, even the 15 miles that I travel to go to church on Sunday, well, that takes me 20 minutes in my car. That's going to take me hours, probably yeah. a full day, if not two days, um, traveling by foot or by horse. So mm. when you think about making it to church at 9 a.m. on Sunday, well, you better have started Friday night. Right. <laughs> and so that, along with the sizes of these buildings, and does it really make sense to have permanent structures when you're meeting this infrequently, kind of help establish just the practicality of, of meeting outside. So it's common, all that to say, this idea of meeting outside wasn't in and of itself a profound idea when it happens on the Cane Ridge Revival in particular, but it's this established tradition within Kentucky and Ohio and the Presbyterian community. One of the other things to understand about that community is the way that they partook in communion. And so church is rare, communion is rare, versus, say, in a maybe higher church tradition, more Episcopalian or Catholic tradition where communion is happening every week. So for the Presbyterians, when they are going to take communion, it is a time of reflection, of repentance, that you, this belief that you should not come and take communion until you are ready Hmm. to really encounter the divine. Yeah. That, you don't do it casually. You don't do it sort of with this with unrepented sin on your soul, with unreconciled dispute. I was going to say beef, <laughs> unreconciled beef between <laughs> unreconciled you and beef. your yeah. and your neighbors, but un, un, yeah, between unreconciliation between you and your neighbors. That all of these things must be cleared away before communion can interesting can happen. So 
the so a communion service at this point for this community is not you know an hour and 15 minutes instead of an hour it's days in some cases of a kind of a multi-day wow thing where we're going to preach for repentance for that repair of relationship between yourself and others and then and then we have communion later and that might be a separate service it might be later in the same service but there is this already idea of open air preaching for repentance that is going to create and evoke emotion. So we're drawing on all of those things about Whitfield and these pietist, pietist and holiness movements of creating this kind of space in this moment. So when we get to August 6th through 8th in 1801, what becomes the Cane Ridge Revival in capital letters, it's not, like I said, it's not, it's not this spontaneous thing that came out of nowhere. It's coming out of this combination of of traditions and this combination of places and as it goes it takes on a life of its own Hmm. in a way and people start hearing about it and people start coming and people more and more people start coming and it's hard to get an estimate on it but by the end scholars think there were somewhere between 10,000 and 25,000 people who came to the Cane Ridge Revival the largest town in Kentucky at this point has about 1,700 people. Oh, my god. So goodness. just to put this in scale. Is this, this like is the entire sh- state of Kentucky? Probably. And Ohio. Probably wow. had some people coming from Tennessee. But, yes, you have this, this massive movement and you have sort of starts with Presbyterian preachers and then you start having Methodist preachers, uh, Baptist preachers, and that's a fun conversation that they have to have to figure out how they all preach together mm-hmm. and, and this con- kind of continuous preaching that's happening because people are coming at all times of the day and it is becomes the social event of the year and just the event of the year so it sounds like it's a festival it it is um with the different with people preaching one after the other and people kind of showing up when they show up and spontaneous singing and spontaneous manifestations of the spirit we'll look at some quotes here in a minute from some people who were at cane ridge but this is where we start to see people falling down, people shaking, people oh. frothing, people barking like dogs. These sort of extravagant displays of spirit, people speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. And Pentecostal, these sort of things that are attributed to a Pentecostal tradition. Yes, yes. And Which has that existed up until this point? So the Pentecostal tradition as we know it and name it today is a denomination that really forms in the early 20th century, but absolutely has its roots here and absolutely has its roots in these emotive holiness movement revival type experiences. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we can quite call this Pentecostalism yet. We can call it a charismatic movement and a charismatic tradition, but it's absolutely a predecessor to what's going to happen in the early early 20th century with the sort of formalization of a Pentecostal charismatic yeah great movement so in, it was interesting your your comments about a festival i think is an apt one that this was both a you know, truly religious event but also this is the most people that people have seen in Maybe ever. When you think that your your biggest town is 1,700 people and all of a sudden there's 10,000 people. And so as you get towards the fringes of the revival, 
it gets a little bit less religious, hmm. I would say. And a little bit more. Imagine that. Gambling and drinking oh, no. and, and other activities. <laughs> yeah. And so it does sort of serve this, this interesting kind of social outlet as well. So I wanted to read a couple of excerpts from people who are at, at Cane Ridge who can kind of describe for us yeah. what's going on. So this is from a Baptist who was on their way to the revival on August 7th. So officially it starts August 6th, but so this is on the 7th. And he says, I am on my way to one of the greatest meetings of the kind perhaps ever known. It is on a sacramental occasion. Religion has gotten to such a height here that people attend from great distances. On this occasion, I doubt not there will be 10,000 people and perhaps 500 wagons. He goes on to say, the people encamp on the ground and continue praising God day and night for one whole week before they break up. Uh, that second wow. part is from a little bit later, obviously after the after the revival. I love the wagons bit that he puts in there. And 500 wagons. Wow. <laughs> a lot of a lot That's of a lot of people in wagons. A lot of people in wagons, yes. <laughs> so regarding the manifestations of the spirit, uh, this quote comes to us from James Finley who was at Cane Ridge, who described several thousand people tossed to and fro like the tremulous waves of the sea in a storm or swept down like the trees of the forest under the blast of a wild tornado. At one point, he says, at least 500 swept down in a moment as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened upon them and then immediately followed by shrieks and shouts that rent the very he heavens. The Reverend Robert Stewart says, the process was briefly this. An individual to your right is taken with the exercise of falling, of which you were notified by a shriek. There's then an immediate rush to the place. A circle collects around the individual and commences singing and then praying and then exhorting. And another is seized on your left, another in front, which soon spread over the whole extent of the congregation. The falling down of multitudes happened under the singing of Watts psalms and hymns more frequently than under the preaching of the word. So there's this huge, wow. somewhat spontaneous congregational singing that's happening. And that second guy is so dry <laughs> in his. So so the guy on your right's going to go down. And then pretty soon the guy on your left's going to go down. Before and you you'll know, know it. because people are shrieking. <laughs> the shrieking. So, yeah, this it's clear that this is a rather raucous sort of probably loud, probably very exciting time. Well, yes. And. You know, we're talking 1801. So mm -hmm. the American Revolution ended not too long ago. We're sort of we're, we're right on this edge of this new nation doing this new thing, kind of a modern Republican democracy. Mm -hmm. Revolutions are about to start happening around the world, taking inspiration from the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. Then you have this religious fervor that's happening around these new manifestations of the spirit doing these dramatic things. Huh. And I think it in some ways sets a specific tone to sort of the early republic and these early foundational years of the American religious tradition. And so camp meetings and revivals become become staples. Like we talked about earlier on, you know, we have whole conventions now dedicated to how do we do these right as a formalized yeah. process. And we still see them today that you'll be driving down the road and see a, you know, hey, Tent, tent revival yeah. coming up the week of August blank. And those are carrying on this legacy. I think we also see the legacy of this, the power witnessed in this emotive movement in later holiness movements, like the one led by Phoebe Palmer, mm 
the end of the 19th century. And Phoebe is a, a Methodist who comes to this moment of a real profound emotional encounter with God and needs to share it with others. And so she tells her family and then she starts leading small Bible studies in her home, but people's lives are being changed. and Everybody's telling their friends, you've got to come. And so it gets bigger and bigger. And what's interesting at this time is in most traditions, women are not allowed to preach or at least not preach formally. And so you have this woman who's feels called to exhort for the sake of the gospel and to preach the gospel, but has to work within her tradition. And so initially she's speaking to just women and she's speaking to Bible studies in her home. And that's okay because it's not defined as preaching, but as it grows in popularity, as she gets asked to speak in other places, it becomes this interesting conversation about what happens with these exhortations. We saw it with the new Lebanon covenant about these sort of spontaneous young impassioned men who are preaching all of a sudden. And mm -hmm. we see it in descriptions of what's happening in Cain Ridge, that people have these experiences and feel compelled to, to say them. And that includes both men and women. And so the church really has to struggle with what is preaching. Mm. How do we define it? Is pre are preaching and exhortation the same thing? And if not, what, sort of falls where, what's the propriety around each. We don't want to deny the spirit and deny the movements of the spirit, but also how do we maintain orthodoxy and structure and legitimacy and legitimacy of authority in, in the face of all of this. And so Phoebe Palmer's a really interesting example, I think, because we start to see a shift with her and that's also around the same time that the women's suffrage movement is is starting mm -hmm. and it's changing conversation around the role of women and sort of the appropriateness um, thereof of women exhorting. And I have another example for us. Mm -hmm. This is an excerpt of Harriet Livermore, who she takes a really active role in revivals and in sort of participating of these Christian movements and feeling this incredibly strong conviction to preach. And she actually preaches essentially a sermon before the assembled house of Congress on January 8th, <laughs> 1827. So it's, it's an interesting one because in the excerpt of, of her sermon, it's not perhaps what we would think of as a She's not doing an, an exegetical, I don't know if that's a word. She's not doing an exegesis of a scripture, but she is attesting to the ways the spirit are moving in the world yeah, and, the, and, the, okay. and the things that are happening. So it's kind of this interesting look at, again, this question of preaching. What is preaching? Where do we draw the lines around preaching and who can preach? Because that's something that starts to really get negotiated. and. Some of that comes out of this moment in Cane Ridge and this sort of, it's been called America's Pentecost. And so when the spirit comes down and, and people feel compelled to speak and to preach, how does that look? Yeah. And, and how, what's the relationship with that and emotion mm -hmm. and orthodoxy and truth and legitimacy? It's clear that what happened at Cane Ridge to, due to the amount of people, due to, to the massive crescendo that led up to it, that it set off 
a lot of different things that we're still seeing today that kind of began some new traditions of things. What, other than the amount of people though, what made it this specific revival, Cane Ridge, what made it different? I mean, was there, was it like planned? Were No. It, so, well, sort of. So a much smaller camp meeting settled around a communion service was, was planned. And then it took on this life of its own. So mm. what was planned was a much smaller thing. Interesting. Uh, and then it and then it grew. You know, some of it was the size, some of it was the notoriety. This is the one of the first times in the United States we see quite as much manifestation of the spirit in in terms of the falling down and the shrieking and the barking like dogs. And so sort of word is going to spread about that. Yeah. And so it is the biggest, the loudest, and the first yeah. of, of that category. You know, I think, like we said before, there were camp, there was a camp meeting tradition and an evocative emotional preaching tradition in mm -hmm. place, but this really sort of was the moment that all of that came together in immense synergy to create this thing that was bigger than anybody had thought or planned. Fascinating. I mean, what do we learn from this in terms of looking at history? What are some things that we can, is there anything we can take away or that we can glean from this as we look at the great cloud of witnesses, you know, these being a part of it? To me, I think some of the best things we can glean are questions. And so I think this question around what is preaching is a really interesting one that applies specifically within the church setting and especially churches that are thinking through what is appropriate for different levels of congregation members about can you have lay preachers, can you not, can you have a female head pastor, what are appropriate roles for people without divinity degrees or hmm. higher education, do you have to have at least a bachelor's, do you have to have a master's degree, Do you is, is a calling enough? I think that these are all really interesting questions I think this question of emotion and fervor and also a quest for substance and sort of logical validation is a really interesting one. Personally, I think if we go either way too far, I think we go too far. Mm -hmm. This is one of the ands of Christianity for me, that it is both an emotional, intimate, active moving of the spirit tradition, also to be a thing it has to have definition and so it has orthodoxy and structure and theology the dynamic of groups suggests that yeah. when people get together in groups there's really some sort of hierarchy that forms and some sort of question about legitimacy of when somebody says go left who are they to say go left yeah and what if i want to go right mm -hmm. so to me looking at cane ridge in particular really highlights those questions and those questions that are answered in, in a variety of ways, but they're good for us to think about and to rethink about whatever our moment is or where, wherever we are in this moment. How have those questions been answered for us in the past? And what do we think about that and about where we are now in light of all of this question asking that's come before us? Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of Church Historia. A quick note before we close. 
One of the other main things to come out of the Cane Ridge Revival was a movement founded by Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell that led to the foundation of the Disciples of Christ, the Christian Church, and the Churches of Christ. Check out our blog for some more info. Church Historia is Stephanie Fulbright, our historian and tea mistress, and me, Leslie Eiler-Thompson, producer, editor, and in-house Iditarod expert. Our music in today's episode was played by Andrea Yoey and Megan Santee. All episodes were recorded in the gorgeous halls of the Scarrett Bennett Center in Nashville, Tennessee, while the church bells rang on that beautiful afternoon day. You can find more about Church Historia, including a bibliography for today's sources, at churchhistoria.com.